once you get more complex factors going at greater speed, it's like exponentially more difficult to predict. And so even with big data and with AI, I would argue we're not going to be able to predict with any confidence what's going to happen. And so that the corollary is that is we've got to be postured for the unpredictable and the uncertain. That's got to be in our DNA for the future. Welcome to the Forging Metal Podcast. My name is Ron Duran Jr. and I will be your blacksmith as we explore the world of adversity and doing hard things. Come inside and grab your hammer. The fire is hot and ready. Let's get to work. The forge is now open. Today on The Forge, we have two wonderful guests. The first is General Stanley McChrystal, who was a Green Beret, Ranger, and Paratrooper during his career in the military. He's probably best known for his command of Joint Special Operations Command in the mid-2000s. And as you might guess, he was no stranger to risk. Former Defense Secretary Robert Gates described McChrystal as perhaps the finest warrior and leader of men in combat I have ever met. After retiring from the military, Stan founded the McChrystal Group in January 2011 to deliver innovative leadership solutions to businesses globally in order to help them transform and succeed in challenging dynamic environments. My other guest is Anna Butrico. She's an associate at McChrystal Group where she focuses on thought leadership. Currently, she is the co-author with General Stan McChrystal for their newly released book, Risk, A User's Guide. Both Stan and Anna can be reached through the McChrystal Group at www.mccrystalgroup.com and I will provide links to their book in the show notes. I am confident you're going to enjoy this conversation as much as I did about leadership, risk, vulnerabilities, learning, and being adaptable. Enjoy the show. Let's do this. This is this is going to be fun. I'm excited. Um, all right. I have to be honest. As I was getting prepared for the show, I didn't know that I was going to have two wonderful guests. So that's a pleasant surprise that Anna is joining us as well. Let me start by saying this. I've been looking forward to this discussion since we... We basically got this on the schedule several weeks ago, and I know that both of you are very busy. Um, I've listened to your podcast, several of your episodes, read your book, Team of Teams. I haven't read the new one yet, but it's in my queue. I feel like this is it's a, a great honor for me to be sitting here talking to both of you. I want to say thank you, General, for your service, many, many years of service to the country, and and for both of you giving back and sharing your wisdom with our listeners today. Well, and Ron, please call me Stan. Will do, will do. I had to throw that in there at least once. You know, I feel like you <laughs> earned it to be called general at least once. <laughs> I've been called a lot of other things too. So Stan, would be great. All right. All right. All right. So in that vein, let me start this quite this first question with you, Stan. You know, you've been retired from the military for, I think it's been about a decade. And from what I can tell, you haven't slowed down a bit. What drives your passion to keep adding value to the world? I mean, I feel like you've earned maybe an easy retirement. Why not just have a cold beer on a tropical beach somewhere? What keeps you going? Ron, you sold me. I'm heading off to the beach. No, the, the reality is when I left the service, and to be really candid, it felt like I had an incomplete in the course because I left the, the military suddenly. 
not in the moment I expected to. I was expecting to stay a couple of years longer. So it was, I had things that I, I wanted to prove to myself. And so I entered the civilian world with no plan, no idea what I wanted to do. And then what I found was we started McChrystal Group. I started teaching. I, I wrote my memoirs. And then I've been involved in a series of books after that. And they became very enriching experiences, like Anna and I writing this most recent book together. These are things I never thought I'd do when I was in uniform. And yet I've gotten to know people and get perspectives and study things. And that has been like a gift. I, I tell people all the time, you know, I've had a couple of unlucky things in my life, but for the most part, people should bet on me at Las Vegas because ever since I retired, I've just had this good fortune in opportunities and relationships. And so that's what keeps me moving. And I like that. Let me just kind of follow that up with, I feel like, and maybe you feel this as well. I feel like, and maybe this sounds maybe a little touchy feely, but we, you know, positive energy attracts positive energy, right? This this quantum physics kind of thing. And, and I think we make, in some sense, we make our own luck. Do you agree with that, Stan? I do. I think we certainly make the, the atmosphere around us. We sort of make the weather system that governs us. You know, if you, if you finish your career and it's not exactly the finish what you want, you can live for the rest of your life in bitterness and you can sort of be an aggrieved, you know, angry old general. And what was the point? You know, there's just no advantage. And so what I've decided to do is focus forward. I joke that, you know, I, my wife helps me do that because that's her mindset. And she lives life like she drives with no use for the rear view mirror. And it's, it just allows you to do things that the baggage of being bitter doesn't afford you. Wonderful, wonderful advice, I think. Anna, how did you get involved with writing a book with Stan and, and really this, this topic, which we're gonna talk about later, this topic of risk, how did you get involved in this? So yeah, it's been a, oh gosh, four, almost four year journey now. So I was an intern at McChrystal Group. So when I was in college, I spent a summer, summer of 2017 at McChrystal Group. I really enjoyed the work that we were doing with our clients, helping them uh, adopt the team of teams methodology. So I was really fascinated. I, I partnered with a nonprofit during my summertime there. I was offered a return offer, came back full-time and really was on the consulting side of the house at McChrystal Group. So I was with an oil and gas company for 10 months, helping execute leadership development programs. I have a background in English and communication studies. So I a little bit of a, a rhetorical background and training. So the opportunity presented itself to apply for General McChrystal's speechwriter. So I applied. I was his speechwriter for a bit. We did speeches, we did written work, and then eventually the book opportunity came up and I was honored to be asked to co-author it. So the topic was something and the thesis was something we worked on together, but risk really was something that he wanted to write from from the beginning, but we can get into that. But that's been my, my journey, so I've seen all sides of the business. Ron, all let right. me tell you how I selected Anna, how I wanted her to... <laughs> First, be my the, the other side of the view. <laughs> yeah, I mean, she would. She was an intern, and I was impressed. But I didn't get. I didn't watch closely what she did. And then she went out and worked on client side for a while, and then we went on something that the McChrystal Group does. Our firm does leadership ventures, and we go do different things that are team building, and they're a little bit hard. And we went to Western Virginia to do orienteering. And it was in the middle of the winter and it was wickedly cold. And they broke us into these groups. And Anna and I were part of a four-person group. 
And because I was the former soldier, everybody assumed I could land navigate, bad assumption. But we got maps and compasses and we head off through the woods and Anna leads us. And I mean, she was like Daniel Boone. She, she took us through thickets, over hills, through trees, and she was indefatigable. And so I said, anybody who is that focused at getting it done, maybe she was just cold, I don't know, but just so getting it done <laughs> so that once we got an opportunity later for me, I needed a, a speechwriter, and it was the natural. And of course, once she did that for a few months, I said, the only person I want to write a book with is Anna Batrico. That's uh, that's a that's a great testament right there, and a little bit of grit, huh, Anna? Maybe we get you in the special forces. Let me let me ask you this, Anna, and and don't I hope this doesn't come across wrong, but did you have a moment when this opportunity came up? Did you have a moment where you said, "Oh my gosh, I can't do this"? Did you have any what we like to say imposter syndrome before you said yes? It's a good question. I. Uh, I come from a very supportive family. So when the opportunity presented itself, I said, Ooh, what do you think? Do you think that this is something that I'm able to do? Do you think this is something that I can do? It's it. it I've never written a book. I've never been a speechwriter. I, I am four decades Jennifer Crystal's junior. So I, I just wanted to make sure that this was in my power and ability to be able to even attempt, let alone achieve. My family is extremely supportive. And so any imposter syndrome that I did inevitably feel, they, told me to trust my gut, trust my education and build a partnership and a relationship with Stan. And that's, that's what, what I think we've done really throughout this two year long kind of writing journey together. So I think the family and, and the relationship we built has helped me work around that. Yeah. And let me describe that in more detail, Ron, because we started the book really in the fall of 2019. And in the first week of December, I had to have spine surgery and I'd had several before they had to fuse my spine. Okay, no problem. We'll go get this done and move on. Well, after a month, I had complications. So they had to open me up, do it again. And I spent a month in the ICU wow. and then had complications. They had to open me up and do it again. And I spent another month in the ICU. And so all this time, I'm flat on my back. Anna's starting the book. We're moving along. And then I come out of the ICU and COVID is waiting. And so we are physically separated after that again for more than the next year. So we're doing this virtually where we've got a really tight timeline because we're trying to get this thing done. And so it was harder than it would have been had we had sort of the traditional setup where we sat in the same office or something. And, and yet Anna, literally at, at times, she locked herself in the attic, I think, in the New Jersey home. And, you know, like some of this manic researcher slash writer and just cranking out stuff. Oh, I'm so keen on this whole idea of doing hard things. So it sounds like a little bit of doing hard things there. And, you know, I've, I've interviewed a few authors that have started books before the pandemic that are perfectly placed for the world we're in now. Do you guys, do you guys ever think, wow, we started this book before the pandemic started? And by the way, the, the book is Risk a User's Guide. That's the new book that Anna and Stan have come out with. And, and I'm thinking as we're going through a global pandemic, that's perfectly positioned, don't you think? And what great luck is any thoughts on that? Yeah, it's interesting. I remember there was a moment in February uh, when we had a conversation. I sat down in Stan's office and he said, this book is going to be about COVID-19. I mean, maybe not explicitly, but the topic of risk was in our laps. It was in our homes. It was in our offices. It was on our faces with masks. 
we knew that that risk was going to be the underlying topic throughout all of COVID. So what we thought to be true as we were talking about risk, studying it, reading about it, that the greatest risk to us is us. We watched it played out in the COVID response everywhere. And when we were all faced against the universal risk that was COVID-19, there was drastically different responses, drastically different um, case numbers and deaths of because of the virus. So we really looked at the vulnerability piece, what caused nations to fail, what caused nations to succeed. So nobody really succeeded against the, the virus, but we saw our thesis come to life and it really turned the ship towards a more direct focus on, on that thesis line. Would you agree, Stan? Absolutely. Well, you know, as we're on that topic, how do you think, and I'll throw this one to Stan. Stan, how do you think we've done, in the United States, how have we done, if you were to give us a grade on how we've responded to this, what, what are your thoughts? And I know this this might be opinion, but I'm curious yeah. what you think. Anna never got any of these in school, so she won't recognize this, but a D. A D. Maybe a D minus. All um, right. And I go back as we studied it, you know, pandemics are predictable. We don't know exactly when they come, but we know they do come, and they come with regularity. Spanish flu and a number of things after that. And public health is really not complicated. We've learned a number of things about public health, and all you've got to do is do it. And then this time, science came forward and produced these vaccines faster than any time in human history. And so those three factors should have linked together to make the United States, and in fact, the world, had we done it right, just a roaring success because COVID-19 is really not that formidable an enemy. And yet through mistakes we made, you know, I grew up playing sports and you talk about turnovers in, in football, bases on balls in baseball. We just did over and over a number of things. And so as Anna outlined, we were able to watch this play out and it was sort of tragedy unfolding but it just aligned with the thesis of our book as we refined it. This is a quote that I'm going to take from your book, Team of Teams. And, and so it start, uh, I'm going to start out with my own words. Despite our advancements in technology, in your words, the world has become, in many ways, vastly more unpredictable. Why is that? I mean, we have all this technology. Shouldn't we be getting better at predicting this? Or wh why do we seem to be going in, the, in an opposite direction? Well, it's interesting. If you take a world that is complicated, that moves at a slower pace with fewer variables, in fact, you can get your mind and arms around that and you can start to predict things with some level of success. Once you get more complex factors going at greater speed, it's like exponentially more difficult to predict. And so even with big data and with AI, I would argue we're not going to be able to predict with any confidence what's going to happen. And so that the corollary is that is we've got to be postured for the unpredictable and the uncertain. That's got to be in our DNA for the future. And, and let me let me just follow with that another quote. And again, with this idea of prediction. So another quote from Team of Teams. Prediction is not the only way to confront threats. Developing resilience, learning how to reconfigure to confront the unknown is a much more effective way to respond to a complex environment. So let me throw this to you, Anna. How do we prepare ourselves for unknown unknowns? We don't know these things are coming. We have no idea what they are. And how do we, how do we prepare ourselves for that? 
So we can use COVID-19 and lessons from it as a guide. So COVID-19 really reminded us of the importance of our human immune systems. And I'll, I'll get to where to the answer to your question, but I'll, I'll take a little bit of journey to get there. So COVID-19 reminded us of the importance of our human immune systems, that we detect the threats of a virus like COVID. We assess that threat. Is it a danger to me? Do I have vulnerabilities to it? We respond sometimes with a fever as our body attacks the virus or the disease or whatever it's confronting us. And then we learn, we build up immunity. So this detect, assess, respond, and learn that happens in the human immune system, we say it needs to happen in organizations as they develop a risk immune system. And that's what our book does. It, it, it talks about ways to have a healthy and strong risk immune system. So to answer your question, the way to become resilient and the way to get around these unknown unknowns is to focus on what you can control, focus on strengthening that risk immune system. And so we talk about 10 dimensions of control where you can influence and strengthen your own ability to detect, assess, respond, and learn. So that's what we would say, just as any, any healthy person wants to strengthen their own immune system, so too should organizations when uncertain threats are coming towards them. And, and I can only assume this would hold true for individuals as well. I mean, whether we're talking about, you know, corporations or, or even teams at the individual level as well, is that, is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that a risk immune system can be something as small as to you individually, to a group of two, to a nation. I mean, it just, it, any sort of interaction between people, ideas, et cetera, require a focus to communication, a really disciplined narrative, careful structure, leadership. I mean, all 10 factors, which we can get into at some point, are important no matter what size the system is. Excellent. Uh, I do want to come back to that list. I have I have seen it, and there's a few of them that, that certainly pique my interest. Before we get to that, though, one of the concepts that I'm also writing my own book, and, and I'm also a pilot, and so one of the things that I'm really kind of fascinated with, and maybe I'll throw this to you, Stan, is this idea of situational awareness. And maybe, you know, in, in, if I were to describe it, I'd say, you know, that ability maybe to predict the future or have a gut feel or intuition. Do, does situational awareness, as it relates to risk, is there a connection there? Can that help us? And what are your thoughts on, on that? It, it's critical. I've studied Flight 178, United Flight, I'm sorry, United Flight 173 back in 1978. And it was a story of a DC-8 that went from New York City to Denver and then changed passengers, put on fuel and then flew to Portland, Oregon. And when it got to Portland, Oregon, it had an indicator light and a bump that they heard that it gave them reason to believe the landing gear were not locked out. And they still had great weather, a perfectly flyable airplane and more than an hour's worth of fuel to sort of sort out the problem. And so they started doing that. They went through checklists and all this. And through the next hour and 15 minutes, as they, they addressed a number of issues, talked to people on the ground, got ready for a landing, the flight engineer kept warning, we better watch our fuel. We're running low on fuel. Ultimately, with five minutes to go before they landed, the pilot says, okay, we're five minutes out. And the flight engineer goes, we have three minutes of fuel. The plane flamed out and crashed and 10 people were killed to include the flight engineer. And they, they came away with the conclusion that the cause of the crash was a failure to communicate effectively in the cockpit, which was 11 feet by 15 feet, small area with three professionals. And they couldn't maintain situational awareness among a trained crew on something that they'd done hundreds of times. 
And so the idea of having awareness of all of the things around you so that you can make contextually correct decisions is essential. And I would argue that communication and many of the other factors all contribute to your ability and success at doing that. Mm, that's good stuff right there. Let's uh, let's continue with this. You know, you guys developed a framework uh, for risk, and it's a simple equation that I really like. Uh, threats times vulnerabilities equals risk. And I'm going to you know draw upon my rusty engineering degree and and kind of work my way through this problem, this this mathematical equation. If I remove threats, if I re- reduce threats to zero, then risk goes away. If I reduce or vulnerabilities to zero, then risk also goes away. So I I think that's a good way to look at this. And it's probably not realistic, right, to take threats or vulnerabilities all the way to zero. How do we use this equation to better manage risk? Let's throw that to you, Anna. So you're exactly right. Anything multiplied by zero equals zero, but that's unrealistic. There's always going to be the threat or the external hazard in our environment and then the vulnerability, our own weakness. We're imperfect creatures in an imperfect system. So that's that's inevitable that, that they will always be greater than zero. But what we found, again, using COVID-19 as our guide, is that the threats continue to change. So think of COVID-19, for example. We, we've had... Um, the Delta variant, we've had the Omicron variant, we're going to have, I don't know, the end of the Greek alphabet, the Zeta variant within a number of weeks. The threats continue to change. We often stress out and burn calories on that threat, on that big bad wolf that's knocking on our door, when we really should be focused on the vulnerabilities or the tools that we have inside our house to respond to that threat. So while the threats continue to change, that vulnerability piece is what's important because honestly, we've seen throughout COVID that we can't keep up. The, the problem will continue to shift. Geopolitically, we've seen something similar, that, that, that threats continue to shape, shift, and change. Time and time again, we're, we are shown that the vulnerability piece is where our attention and focus should be. Naturally, where the book sits, ways, the points that are within your control against the threats that surround is this just another way of saying mitigate risk? I, I would say that it's, it's slightly different because in some ways, reducing your vulnerability mitigates risk, but many people would equate mitigating risk with avoiding it or doing something to the threat itself to minimize that. And what we argue is you usually won't be able to do much to that threat. Occasionally, you can dodge it or you can reduce it but usually it's going to arrive at a time and place of its choosing in the form of its uh, choice as well. And so what we really have to do is be strong enough, resilient enough, so that we can deal with it when it arrives. Anna talked about the human immune system. In fact, the human body ingests, it's estimated, 10,000 microorganisms every day, any one of which could make us sick or kill us. And so... And and many of those it's never seen before. So this ability to detect, assess, respond, and learn is flexibility, adaptability to to constantly arriving in different threats. And that's the way I think we need to think. This is is kind of fascinating. I once had a guest that was, he was a self-defense expert. And he said that, I don't remember his exact words, but it was something along the lines of for self-defense. He goes, "You, you need a system that can adapt to 
whatever is thrown at you. You know, if you practice the same thing over and over again in the gym or, or whatever in a class, and then something comes at you that you weren't expecting, he goes, then usually the system falls apart. I hear that echo in what you're saying is we want to build, and I think that's one of your 10, your 10 items, right? Is to be adaptable. Do you want to speak to that? Yeah, I'll yeah. talk about it first. The The special operations world in which I grew up in was in love with these very choreographed, almost ballet-like operations for many years. And we would plan them in great detail and we would rehearse them. And you've seen them on TV and movies where each person go in exactly place and doing exactly the right thing. And you're just amazed at how coordinated they are. Well, I've been on a ton of special operations and it never actually went that way. As soon as you get on the ground, things start going to hell from the moment and sometimes before you get there. And so what we learned was not to depend upon that. In fact, to build a force that just goes and makes an assumption that things are going to start falling apart. And so adaptability became the core DNA. And so training of individual operators in the organization to be spring-loaded to adapt turned out to be our best response. Mm. Anna, what would you add to that? One one thing that we talked about in the book, and I think it's it, it, it builds off of, of Stan's point, is that adaptability requires both a willingness and ability to adapt to changing conditions. So you need a changing environment, but you need a willingness or an eagerness to change, and you have to be able to do so. We talk about in the book the famous high jump, the Fosbury flop. So Dick Fosbury was a engineering student who went to the Mexico City Olympic Games and jumped over backwards, which at the time was a completely radical way to clear the bar. He, as an engineering student, realized that his center of gravity would be below the bar, so it would give him an advantage when sailing over it. So he was, what, what changed, because there needs to be a changing environment for adaptation to occur, was that they put foamy pits on the other side of the high jump pit so that you could land without breaking your neck as, as you could if there was sawdust or wood chips. But he was willing to try to fly over headfirst backwards, and he was able to do so through athletic ability and, and some mathematics to, to haul himself over the bar. So Adaptability has those three components, a changing environment and a willingness and ability to shift to it. So it's a challenge, though, hmm. in every environment. Let me let me focus on the willingness. You know, I'm a leadership professor and and I think that and, and I'm borrowing this from uh, coach Mike Krzyzewski. He says he wants his best players to have a sense of ego because he says that is what you know, that's what drives that self-confidence and that self-esteem. So as a good leader, when do I know when I'm going to be willing to kind of change course and when do I stick to it and, you know, and, and say, okay, I'm, I'm confident the mission is still valid and I'm going to continue going forward. I mean, I think that's a, a fine line, don't you? How do we make that decision of when to abandon or, or maybe, you know, again, what do we want to use pivot? We want to just change course. What do you think, Stan? Yeah, it's, a, it's great. You use a West Pointer quote, you know, Mike Krzyzewski. So it's a, that's always a great one. I think that there's always the danger, particularly in big organizations with doctrine and habit and training, that you start to become wedded to certain things. And you do that because it's familiar, it's safe. Some great general did it on a battlefield before. So if you use that same tactic, how, how radical it can be, you'll, you'll at least be acceptable. And that really played out in my experience in the military in limiting our mental flexibility or adaptability. 
people felt that as long as they stayed in this safe zone of doctrinally correct and historically proven. But what we really learned was if it's stupid and it works, it ain't stupid. <laughs> and the only thing that matters is at the end, do you win? Does it work? And so what I would say is, how do we create leaders who have that kind of flexibility? One of the reasons I wanted to write this book with a young person with a completely different background to me is because at my age, there's a great tendency and temptation to see the world a certain way, have certain habits and, and get in a rut and sort of drive forward. Anna doesn't bring that. She, she pulls my thinking out of the rut. And so I think what we've got to do is understand that tendency. It's almost a bias. And then pair ourselves with people and processes that, that force us to be more adaptable. I appreciate you say that because one of the things I had in my notes was as I listened to your podcast, I was struck uh, by how many times you said in the podcast that you were learning from guests, you were learning from situations, you know, being on board of directors that, that, that was kind of out of your, your wheelhouse. And, and I, you know, at, at your station in life, I'm thinking, all right, Stan's got it all dialed in. He knows all this, right? <laughs> so I appreciate the fact that you seem like you're a lifelong learner. Why does that seem to be important to you? I, I'm interested to learn things that I don't know. You know, everybody claims that they're curious. I don't know if I'm curious. I just, I, I like to have a, a sense of understanding anything that I'm trying to do or around or somebody saying to me. And I wasn't a great student in college. You can check my, my grades at West Point. They weren't impressive, but I was an engineer. So you and I have a common DNA there. But, nice. but I think it's so important to, to be willing to keep asking yourself, what is it I don't know? Good. I think that that's good. That may be good advice for us all to, to continue to learn, right? There's never a point when we know it all, hopefully. Let's, let me throw this back at you, Anna. And, and you know, I did look at your list of 10. The two that stood out to me were adaptable. We've already talked about that. But the other one, of course, as me being a leadership professor, how does leadership play into this equation, this, this you know, managing risk, if that's the right word? So we argued that leadership is the essential enabler of the risk immune system. So if each of the 10 risk control factors are gears in a machine, or I guess nine of them, leadership is the wrench that kind of turns them all. If we think about the risk immune system as a circle, leadership sits in the center. So we, a system cannot function against any or interact against any risk unless leadership is strong. It brings all of the different um, risk control factors together. So in the book, we actually offer a comparison between two leaders, one that was successful and one not so much. And start off with the one who was not so successful, uh, General Edward Braddock in the Braddock's Defeat, which is a pretty, it's a famous effort as he started in Alexander, Virginia, right near our headquarters. And he ended up at Fort Duquesne against the French and the assault and the attack was a failure, complete and utter failure. The uh, French and um, Indian forces came out and completely obliterated Braddock's forces. And it was a failure across many different risk control factors, though they had a very entrenched structure. Their communication failed. They were biased to think that the Native American warriors weren't dangerous. They, the narrative about how they would attack the event was flawed. They had failure in timing. They didn't adapt. I mean, uh, just across the board, all the risk control factors just 
horrible. And that was largely due to Braddock's leadership. But then on the other side, we offer a positive view. We offer FDR, President Roosevelt, as a very successful orchestrator of all the different risk control factors, particularly during a time of, of, of great risk. He had a very positive narrative when he took the presidency. He brought in a very very diverse perspective of advisors as he was building the New Deal. He communicated with the fireside chat. So he he brought in all the different risk control factors positively. So very different leaders in very different contexts, but their leadership stands out in how they successfully or unsuccessfully led the risk immune system. So it's absolutely critical. A risk immune system is will fail unless leadership is... Um, successful. That's music to my ears. And I know, Stan, one of your passions is leadership development. And there there are many, including myself, who believe there's a void of great leaders, not only in the United States, but around the world. Do you also believe that? And if so, how can we better develop a pipeline of young leaders for the future? Yeah, Ron, I'm going to admit, I don't know the right answer to that. I agree with the premise. I do think that there's a dearth of leadership And I think much of it can be attributed to the fact that we've created an atmosphere, an environment that doesn't necessarily reinforce the leadership characteristics or character that we want. And there were times earlier in history where that was more reinforced. You were were held to higher esteem if you did certain things as a person and the way you conducted yourself. Now we seem to have strayed from that And so trying to be a good leader in what I would consider a sense seems sometimes out of step with the current sort of toxic reality. So I'm not sure we should train leaders to be good toxic environment leaders because (laughs) I think that that can that can create these strange creatures. And we're seeing some of them emerge. I think we got to look at that environment and see how do we bring that back to something modern, but still reinforcing of what we want from people in leadership positions. And, and just continuing with that, you did a, a wonderful little short video, I don't know, it was five or six years ago, you know, advice for your 20-year-old self. And there was two things that stood out to me. One of them was you talked about this personal set of standards for yourself. You know, I have my students do, they have to create a personal ethos, which I think is probably along the same lines of, of what you're talking about. What does that mean to you? A personal set of standards, what does that mean for you? And how can maybe our young leaders, uh, I don't know, create that? Yeah, it's interesting. I, of course, had the opportunity to go to West Point and serve in good units. But when I was a captain, I was assigned to the 75th Ranger Regiment. And when I got to the Ranger Regiment, I thought that everybody would be 10 feet tall because they were specially selected elite people. In reality, they were just like every other soldier, except that the culture in that organization had very clear standards and very rigid expectations that you would live up to them. And when you got there, everyone who arrived stood a little taller, acted with more self-discipline, held themselves to a higher standard because they knew their peers were, but they also, because I am now a ranger, I have to be a certain way. And clearly that was an environment that they created. It was magical. But if any of us can set our own set of standards, there are things, if you tell yourself there are things I do and things I will not do. And you stick to those. Bill McRaven, close friend of mine, he's the guy who led JSOC when they got bin Laden. He gave an incredible speech and wrote a book about make your bed every day. 
And his point is do the basics well, the things that show discipline in your lifestyle and in the way you act, and you will do better in everything. And I think he's absolutely right. That's a wonderful, wonderful uh, commencement speech at the University of Texas. If anybody has not seen that, please go out and watch that. I used to have my students watch that. Let me let me throw this one to you, Anna. You know, sometimes I have either students or clients say, I'm risk averse. And my first you know, thought is you're not going to succeed if you're risk averse. What is your thoughts on that? Can we, is there a, a path to success by being risk averse? So I think the key point in, in that question is, and, and what we've discovered is that risk is not a pejorative. We think again, that if I can use that big bad wolf metaphor, it's not, it, it, we're not focused on the wolf or focused on the house. It is an opportunity. And each risk that you look at or that is confronting you is uh, it presents an opportunity for you to strengthen your vulnerabilities to focus in on factors within your control so if we if we focus inward not outward there's a huge opportunity so to be risk averse is to not focus then on the vulnerabilities that surround not take the chance to improve your weaknesses so uh, i think we have to spin risk on its head entirely as we look at at challenges that are coming towards us so if I'm if I'm hearing what you're saying, we can't avoid it, right? You can say you're risk averse. I don't know if you're going to go live in a bubble somewhere. It's it's going to visit you, right? Is is that kind of what I'm hearing? Well, threats will continue to change. If it's not, I mean, if you're going to sit in your house and there's going to be a threat to staying in your house, I mean, there's some sort of we're never going to sure. be able to keep up, and we're never going to be able to defend ourselves entirely. So. What, rather than burning calories on that, focus on what you can control because you'll never can outrun it. That's just the, the truth that COVID has shown us over and over again. Yeah, we've I've done a podcast with Alex Honold, the, the guy who did Ooh, the yeah. solo climb. And, you know, he takes risks that I wouldn't take because, but for him, they're not the same risk they would be for me. I'd make it 25 feet up and, and fall. He is more trained, he's more thoughtful, and so he is not risk irrational. But, but what he does is he takes probabilities. I mean, he thinks about how do I feel? What are the conditions like? Annie Duke, the, the poker uh, champion, she's very good at that too. She, she talks about don't just bet everything on the turn of a card, pay attention, consider probabilities of success and the gain if you are successful. So it's all a, I would say, a rational, prudent approach, which isn't risk aversion. It's it is calculating. Mm, I like that a lot. I, I like to say I take risks, but I try not to be reckless with those risks. And so I, I like your term irrational. That, that's that's a nice way to look at that. And by the way, watching that film, my hands were sweating the whole time. I, I think Stan and I, you and I are on the same page because I know that you're not a big fan of, of Chris Fussell, you know, rock climbing. So I'm afraid of heights. I don't want to be on the side of a rock anytime soon. <laughs> it's amazing what he did. It ain't that's, natural. <laughs> yeah, it is not. And, and that's that guy's an amazing guy. Let, let's stick with this idea of risk. You know, Stan, let me throw this one at you because obviously this is your background, special forces. I think that the average person that looks at, especially through Hollywood, we look at special forces as those are the, the guys and the, they go out there and they take big risks, right? They'll they'll throw it all out there and, and put their lives on the line and take risks. But the backstory to that is quite different, right? How did that start to change for special forces where actually they don't really take risks? Is that a fair assessment, Stan? 
I think it you the way you describe it is you can't say they don't take any risk, but what sure. you can say is they set conditions in their favor. So for example, most special operations are offensive, meaning you choose the time and place of the action in which you do. So the enemy is reacting to you. You also have done enough intelligence study of the area so you know what you're trying to do. It's like a a receiver in football on a muddy field. The receiver going out has an advantage because he knows where he's going. He knows the pattern he's going to run. The defender has got to respond on muddy field to that, and that's hard. So the special operator prepares the fight so that the fight will generally be shaped the way they want it. And that's how with often smaller forces and things, they can use surprise, they can use conditions, sometimes technological advantages like vision and things like that to do it. And then the other part that we talked about earlier is mature special operating forces also build into the force some resilience. We used to talk about, we wanted very adaptable people in great physical shape with a significant amount of personal courage, audacity, but we never built the plan to rely on that personal courage or the physical strength. The plan was supposed to really not break a sweat. And, but when things went badly, you had that reserve, that buffer ability to then adapt. What we did was we got better at, at shaping the situation and trying to reduce the risk to harm to the hostage. But the bottom line is, particularly against any kind of a savvy terrorist or foe, they can create conditions that keeps that risk pretty high. Okay. And so what, what you have to do is be really good at what you do and try to, to work through those risks as they appear. What is, in your mind, on the frontier of leadership? Where, where are we going? What's new? Maybe, maybe something old that, that we're doing a different way, but what do you think is on the, on the cutting edge of leadership? Let's start with you, Anna. It's a good question. Um, I have followed a lot of, I mean, I, I'm, I'm relatively new into the workforce. The, 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 the leader that I've learned most from is, is Stan. I'm working closely with the book and watching him lead the company. We talk a lot about the future in, in our No Turning Back podcast. We have a whole future focus series. And so we're thinking ahead of what leaders and what work will look like. I think... What COVID-19 has showed us is that leaders, and, and General Crystal has told us time and time again, that leaders have to be open. They have to be transparent. They have to say what they know and what they don't. They have to be in the trenches communicating as quickly and as intimately as in like as one of one of the pack as as they can. I think COVID-19 proved I don't I don't know. I think people like Mark Zuckerberg who are younger leaders, I think that's really interesting how people can lead with different types of influence within an organization without having the tenure, I think is really interesting as well. And I've seen Stan bring other people and other voices into the conversation to define what leadership looks like at our firm and other with other places. So it's a bit of a sporadic answer, um, but I think I think it'll be a combination of getting in the trenches, communicating often, and elevating voices that often haven't been elevated to be a part of that next step forward-looking discussion. Yeah, and so let me let me focus on the idea of being transparent. I, I think there's a lot of people that would say, especially when being transparent means I don't know the answer or I made a mistake. Do does, is that a sign of weakness? You think, Anna, to to be that transparent or, or even, you know, using the word vulnerable. What do you think? Should our leaders do that? 
I don't think it's a weakness. I think it's a strength. I think especially to go back to this risk idea, if we're all focused on mitigating our vulnerabilities and identifying and fixing our weaknesses, if it's a part of the conversation of how we're going to improve it, it has to be a positive focus, not a woe is me, I can't do it because of these 900 different reasons. But I think that transparency towards how we can work towards a solution together against threats that change, I think that's that's only fair for a team in an organization. But there's, of course, guardrails and limits to that situation pending. I like that answer. Stan, what would you add to that? What is, what's on the frontier of leadership? I, I think it's the environment. I think that Anna will be a better leader in the future environment than I would be. I think that it's going to start with a core of values and the self-discipline to adhere to them. But then outside that, you're going to need skills to deal in an environment where information flows so much faster. You can't control the information your organization has like you used to be able to. And so you can't even control their perception of you like you once could, where you could make sure your hair was straight and teeth were brushed and you're looking good when you go out to present yourself. In fact, because of things, you're going to be under scrutiny so much more. And so I think that that's going to take a, a measure of adept savvy using information technology in the complex environment. But it's going to have to be matched with a core bedrock set of values to which you moor yourself, because otherwise you're just going to you're going to blow in the wind. And so I think that's what the newer generation will do. And I think many of them like Anna are absolutely well equipped to do that, but it's not going to be easy. It's a hard environment. Mm. All right, let's go to an even tougher question now. What is, if you're comfortable sharing, I know this is a tough question, but I'll start with you, Stan. What is your greatest failure and what did you learn from it? Yeah, I, you know, I've got a long list to pick from, but clearly the greatest failure for me is the end of my military career. I was four-star general with 34 years in service and an article came out in Rolling Stone magazine that basically described my command team as being, you could say, ill-disciplined, you, you know, locker room mentality and whatnot. I didn't think it was an accurate article, but it doesn't matter. I'm responsible. And if somebody writes an article about my team, I mean, it's my responsibility, both that that article could be written and that it ends up on the, the desk of the president of the United States, my ultimate commander in chief. And in that moment, that felt like absolute failure. I mean, it still feels like failure. It costs me that job and, and ended my military career. Um, and so what I failed at at that moment was one, that that occurred, but I had all these people who were working for me and a tremendous number of them had absolute trust in me. They had, many had come to Afghanistan because I personally asked them to. And we were in our second year of that tour and many had committed themselves for years before that. And boom, I'm suddenly gone and I leave them high and dry. And then the Afghan people to whom I promised my full commitment, boom, I'm gone again. And so coming to grips with that reality of failure, and you can't, you know, you can't point fingers and say, no, it's somebody else's fault. It's somebody else's failure. You, know, you just have to say, it's a failure and I own it. And then you have to decide what you're going to do about it. And so this gets around to the idea that we talked about initially earlier. You have to then decide what you're going to be, because if you decide because I failed, I am going to be a failure. That's going to be my moniker for the rest of my life. You can do that. And in fact, people will invite you out to lunch to hear your story. 
because if you have enough celebrity in that failure, they will do that. And the key to me, in my mind, is deciding that's not what you are. You can fail and not be a failure because you get choice there. You, you have agency over what you are tomorrow. You don't have agency over what happened yesterday. There's no point in relitigating the past, but you decide what it's like tomorrow. And it's not easy. And I would say that that's the, the biggest life lesson for me. It's not how to avoid failure. It's what do you do after you failed so that the future is better than it would otherwise be. Mm, words of wisdom. Anna? Do you want to take a stab at that? It's hard to it's hard to follow that. I think that that's a a poignant way to look at it. And I like what what Stan said that just because you failed, you're not a failure. I can think of plenty of instances. I mean, something for as simple as I bombed an exam in college in computer science. I mean, bombed. And this is not my biggest failure by any means, but I'm using it as a way to explain. I kind of build upon what uh, Stan just said. I mean, I had to withdraw from the class. I have a big old W on my transcript. Stan talked about D's or A's and I had a big old W from withdrawing that. I mean, and I think I might shift the question if I may a little bit to a weakness rather than a, than a catastrophic failure in, in a way. I, I think that the inability to say, okay, I'm not going to start something that I think is going to end and burn in flames or to not prioritize well, if you think that that's going to be an end. I think something that I personally struggle with is prioritization, whether that's work, how I prioritize my family, how I prioritize my social. I mean, all of that is a part of a person beyond the books they write, the products they create, the, the the conversations they have when they work in front of a screen. That's something that I always struggle to do. But I think when I do fail or mess up, knowing that I am not a failure because I failed to uphold a relationship or send something in on time or have something that sounds good written or verbal if it's for a podcast. I think that that's something that I, that I'm working on continually. So W's and transcripts are fine, but I think it's the journey to sort of move on. Thanks for joining us this week. If you enjoyed the podcast, please tell all your friends. If you didn't, let's just forget this happened and we'll try again next week. Until then, join the revolution to forge metal and connect with us on social media.